0: Hello, and welcome to episode 143 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. First, a warm welcome to Jesse M. and Virginia W. to the Modern Manager community. We are building a network of like-minded managers across industries and geographies who want to learn and support each other. Plus, members get direct access to me via our members-only Slack community, where I will answer your specific questions and direct you to additional resources when I can along with other benefits like episode guides, guest bonuses, and group coaching. There are a few different membership options, so you can find the one that's right for you, and I would love to have you be part of this journey. Learn more about membership at themodernmanager.com join. Also, if you ever have felt like you just don't understand a team member or you're communicating on different wavelengths, it might be a matter of difference in personality and style. When I was first learning about how our preferences show up in the workplace, I had so many aha moments, and it really enabled me to find new ways to work with my colleagues that not only allowed us to work more effectively, but it eliminated some of those frustrations or tensions that we'd previously experienced. This is what this course, Managing My Personality, is all about. It's learning how to work better with people who have different preferences, styles, or approaches than you have. I am leading this live, interactive, three-part webinar series with the folks at TypeCoach, so you get lifetime access to their amazing online tools at no extra cost. You can learn more about the course and register at themodernmanager.com slash courses personality. Now, today's guest is Omolara Uwamedimo. Omolara is a physician, a success strategist who works with women professionals to rediscover their purpose, prevent burnout, and achieve their vision without resorting to struggle or sacrifice. When Omolara first reached out to me, I was so excited because she talked about how a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are really designed for the white people. They focus on helping us white people understand structural racism, inequity within our organizations, unconscious bias, microaggressions, white supremacy culture, and to manage our own white fragility so that we can get comfortable talking about race and privilege. And yet not enough programs also attend to the needs of people of color who've experienced the impact of all those things that I just mentioned. So, Omolara and I talk through her approach to providing the space and support for people of color to do their own work, while us white folks do our work needed. Now, here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern
1: Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfer stewart
0: It is such a pleasure to have you today, Amalara. I'm really excited for our conversation because I feel like this is a topic that I haven't covered enough on the show. So I'm really glad that you reached out to be a guest today.
1: Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here and to really share and hopefully, I think, experience some shared learning as well. (laughs) Oh, great. I love
0: shared learning. All right. So let's first just set the stage because we're going to talk about managers, managing people of color, or kind of being a person of color, managing others. And I think we can kind of, I want to like take a step back first and just kind of make sure that everyone who's listening really has a, a decent understanding of the experience of a person of color inside a majority white organization. So when we say like how you're going to support your people of color in your organization or on your team, they understand kind of what is that initial experience that they need to be thinking about as they design their managerial approach or their interventions or their DEI programming.
1: Yes. And I think, you know, I think this is a really important. And thank you for setting the stage because I think that's extremely important. You know, just to give some insight, of course, as, as people know, I am a physician, but most of my work has really been um, shrouded in this, in the wonderful place of academia, right? So a little bit different From corporate, but in academia, I would say that the first and foremost thing was understanding that in a lot of these predominantly white institutions and systems and structures, there is a level of a lack of safety that many people of color experience. And whether that be due to situations from the past where they felt either devalued or dismissed or disrespected, there is a lot of that that is being brought in into the institution almost in a sense of trying to understand whether or not this is going to be one of those unsafe places where I'll have to, the terminology that many of us use is code switch, which is kind of putting on a mask that makes other people feel comfortable so that we don't feel that our we are doing anything potentially that can jeopardize our ability to to stay in the institution. And as you may imagine, that comes with a lot of distress, a lot of potential baggage in the sense of having two jobs, the one that you get paid for and the one that requires you to act in this way that hopefully doesn't jeopardize or, or alienate or potentially offend somebody, even though... That usually is not the intent of how we operate. And so you've heard probably tropes like it's angry Black woman or assertive. I know that that's been something aggressive, excuse me. That's been something I've experienced when I speak up, when I just say what's on my mind. And so those are the kind of things that people are usually bringing in a lot of times, especially I would say for myself as a Black woman.
0: I'm feeling like I can relate in some ways as being a a woman in a, in a predominantly male environment and kind of not wanting to come across as too emotional. and so really trying to like check the way that I talk. and I'm imagining that there are, are so many more experiences as a person of color that you're kind of bringing in as you're describing. And then we have the intersectionality of being a woman of color, right or a really young person of color or a really older person of color, right? And we have all these other dimensions to our identity that I imagine get layered on when we're thinking about the, the experience and that kind of code switching that you're talking about. Is, is, am, I, am I on the right path here?
1: You are. I think, you know, I think that every time, right, when we think about intersectionality, we're thinking of multiple levers of marginalization, right? And so, you know, whether you're thinking about being a white woman and being in a predominantly white male space, there is a shared potential cultural experience. Now you add on a person of color, what is that shared cultural experience? And where is it that there, there's an understanding of how you operate versus a lack of understanding about that or assumptions that have been made by society because either as a manager, your your experience or your exposure with other people may have been limited to only certain spaces. And so when we don't have a large array of experiences or environmental uh, spaces that we've been able to learn and grow and connect with each other assumptions take over and then that's where that's kind of the breeding ground for microaggressions <laughs> I like to say oh
0: completely and I feel like we could have an entire conversation on microaggressions but I I think we should hold on that one for a second and talk about a couple other pieces here and maybe we'll soak back if we have time yeah let's do it so Let's assume now that I am a white manager and I have one person of color on my team. And I'm like, all right, I'm totally bought into this. I want to like create a safe space. I don't want my colleague to have to code switch. That seems like a terrible thing to be forcing someone to do or to even unintentionally be creating an environment which they feel obligated to do that. So you describe kind of a four-layered approach that we should be thinking about. So can you walk us through what that approach is?
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing, you know, and I I, I have four layers of it, and I'll, I'll just say them for everyone to hear, which is creating safe spaces. I like to say freedom spaces for marginalized individuals, recovery and discovery, learning and support, and then strategy and accountability. And the first thing I would say, right, when thinking about your scenario, I think the first thing would be that person saying, I'm bought in. So why is there only one person of color here? That's the first probably thing that even goes before, yes. um, right? What, like why? Um, what, and so that interrogation, that self-interrogation of always looking at the tables around me and understanding who's not here should be happening continuously. It should also always be this level of What is the next level? Because, right, and we know, we know the research and the data that really tells us how amazing diversity is for company growth and company company success and sustainability and scalability. And so understanding that piece and saying, First of all, interrogating why why is this so non-diverse is going to be really important. So I just wanted to lay that foundation. So, So for the first thing, it's in terms of creating space. One of the things that's really important is understanding that when we remember that all of these biases exist, right, that people don't feel immediately or inherently don't feel safe. In institutions, because of whatever they've experienced, we need to now think about how do we create levels of safety for marginalized individuals. And so, first and foremost, there should be times and spaces. And also, you know, a lot of times this works with either doing a uh, faculty review or doing reviews with your with your um, employees about both. What do you feel either? is pushing you towards the organization and keeping you connected? And what do you feel is lacking that isn't keeping you connected? So a lot of places have employee resource groups, many places, if I'm thinking about the person where there's only one one person of color, then we might have to expand in terms of thinking about what's the maybe larger group that it might be women, if it was a woman, but thinking about ways that we can create spaces that aren't totally white, cisgendered, heteronormative spaces, and allow for these smaller spaces to cultivate some level of vulnerability. Um, And that allows them to connect over shared experiences and feel validated, which if you're getting that kind of space and environment in your organization, now it immediately connects your organization to being a place of safety, a place that has allowed for this space to exist, which improves retention and improves employee satisfaction.
0: So I want to jump in for a second and ask, you know, for smaller organizations that only have, you know, half a dozen or a dozen or two dozen people. They may not have kind of a quantity in a way that makes sense. Like they may only have one East Asian person in the company, which as we already talked about, like that's a problem of itself, but they may not be able to kind of create a a community in that way. Or let's say that you're a manager inside of a big organization, but your organization's a few hundred people, but they don't have ERGs. They don't have these kinds of groups and there's nobody on your leadership who's thinking about or doing this. Are there other ways that we can show our colleagues that we are aware and thinking about them and creating that safety? I mean, I, I mean things like, you know, just either just talking about this or connecting them and encouraging them to connect with other community organizations or networks?
1: Yes, that's exactly the thought. So if, if you don't have it in you, right, there's no need to, and you don't have the capacity to build, then knowing that there are organizations, I know my, mine is one, but knowing that there are organizations that specifically are around this idea of creating a collective space for people of a shared either industry, but of a certain race or a certain gender. Uh, and so those are really important to investigate and to also have the tough conversation with understanding and recognizing that this is a this is a problem that you are truly trying to figure out how to navigate. And I think being transparent with your employees about the fact that we realize that <laughs> this is not a place where you know we feel like you can thrive in your fullest self, you know, without having kind of that ability to, to have that safety. And so one, if there are any recommendations, but two, coming up with certain resources of things that show that you've put in the effort. To really think about what spaces exist for if you're in tech, Black women in tech, if you're in this, you know, what are the spaces that potentially would be helpful for for that person to make sure that they're getting that from someplace and not, you know, and not not having it in the place where they, they actually are situated. Awesome. All right. Now
0: let's talk about recovery and discovery.
1: Yeah, So recovery and discovery is extremely important because a lot of times when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, a lot of times it includes a training <laughs> and there's, you know, a great person who's brought in to talk about, you know, implicit bias, not really anti-racism, which is another call for another day. And oftentimes the focus really is on the white people in the room and on kind of them discovering what are the issues, what are the biases, and what are those things that have really allowed for this environment to propagate in terms of either racism and marginalization. However, oftentimes there isn't space that is designated or validated or even recognized that needs to be there for recovery. And so that means how are we also, when we do talks about microaggressions, how are we also focusing not only on how do you stop doing those, right, and committing those things, but also how do you as a person who is maybe the victim or the oppressed of that, how do you navigate that? What are the the tools and the things that you can do as well? And so most, so this really is around an equity piece where you want your any work that you're doing in diversity, equity, inclusion to make sure that it is not just targeting the quote-unquote norm or the, the, those, uh, those who have been potentially perpetrating certain issues that cause that unsafety, or whether that be unconsciously or consciously. But you also want to have a space that allows for recovery from the trauma that comes in day in, day out, when people have to go in and potentially experience these kind of issues, whether those be, for me as a physician, as a Black woman physician, whether that be not being acknowledged as a physician, whether it be um, being, being looked over for certain positions um, because of being a woman, or whether it just be being questioned many times about the, my validity and my credibility on an ongoing basis and the trauma that that seeds. And there needs to be space for recovery. Um, And not just discovery.
0: I love everything you just said. And I feel like we focus so much on the, like fixing the white people. And, (laughs) and And I put myself in that bucket of like, I'm on my own learning journey and trying to like see how my own behaviors are sometimes not the way that I want to be living, but I'm learning how those behaviors are not working for me. They're not living my values, even though I think I'm doing everything right. And it's like, oh, actually wake up a second. Like when you say that, or when you do that, it's, it's, that's not how you want it to come across. And I, I had an example where I like didn't give someone feedback because I didn't think it was particularly going to help the situation. And later on was told by a, a wonderful friend, you know, it's actually a pattern of not giving women of color feedback. And when you do that, you're doing a disservice. So I get that you were like, you know, you were protecting her in the moment because it wasn't going to like necessarily help that situation. But in reality, you actually weren't being a good colleague. Like Mm. You you didn't give her the feedback that she deserved. And this is a pattern of people not giving women of color feedback. And I was like, whoa, oh my gosh, I need to like (laughs) Holy moly's like I it was such a, a great moment for me to like really recognize and learn and I'm so glad I had someone who is who could tell me that because I needed to hear it and like I feel like exactly what you're saying if we spend so much of our DEI diversity equity inclusion energy money focus on like how do we help the white people get better and not enough on what is the harm that's been done and how do we help support the people who have been, as you say, intentionally or unintentionally caught in the crossfire of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And, you know, and that feeds really well into learning and support, which is the third layer, you know, which is more so around a lot of times I will say that um, there. So I'm going to I'm going to go back a little bit. I'm going to like give some historical kind of Context for this, but there is a black women, which I it just what I'm, I I want to talk about, just because that is the that is that is where I come from. But I think it's a really good example for others. But a lot of the the ways that we show up have been many times cultivated by um, being able to either resist or being able to protect from many of the tropes and the stereotypes that have been created even from from times of slavery. So, you know, whether that be things like Jezebel or by Mammy or Matriarch, these are all antagonistic stereotypes that have been created, which have been perpetuated in media, right? And perpetuated in, in many environments. And so it's very clear that although, you know, we all strive as much as possible to be anti-racist, our messaging and the things that we've grown up in kind of feed into certain beliefs that we have. And so one thing that I really, really think about is the fact that for many people, their coping mechanism has been, for me at least, has been strong Black women, which has been emotionally suppressed because of the fear of, you know, of. Attack inter independence because of the idea that I don't want to look as if I need somebody or need help because that could mean somebody thinks I'm not qualified or capable. And then also, this idea of constant caregiving and showing that I am someone who is someone who cares about other people who takes care of other people, which is a complete pushback on the matriarch, which was a trope definitely in the 70s and 80s where. There's single black woman not taking care of her kids, all of these kind of things. And so why I bring that up in learning and support is the fact that there's a lot of learning about how to show up as yourself and also how to make sure that when people show up as themselves, when they finally realize like that, you know, I want to show up in the way that I actually am, how do we make sure that that is comfortable? And how do, how do managers who are, are, who are not of color ensure that people can do that without um, maligning them or without dismissing them? So if I show up and say, finally, I'll take the leap of, of raising my hand and speaking up, and then I'm constantly overlooked that is a problem and so how do we make sure people are learning new skills about how do they create environments in the work and in work encounters that are allowing for people to be and recognizing that what are the things that we do so easily that need to be changed and also the support system so the the thing about this is more so just making sure that we have Environments that allow for Black women, and this is so funny, and other other people of color, that have environments to give, that have sponsorship, that have mentorship, that also potentially, and if you don't have it in, in your company, I've had a bunch of people who their employers <laughs> decided, hey, you should come to this. I want you to actually We will pay for you to go to this coach because she is a, a black woman. She is in medicine and has that shared experience. And can give that. And so you want all of your employees to be able to access that. And that gives them an upper hand, a better, a better, basically predisposes them for success if you're creating that kind of environment as well.
0: Amazing. I feel like there's so much more to say with this, but I want to make sure we get to the last exactly. one and a few <laughs> other good questions. So let's talk about strategy and accountability.
1: Yes. So one of the things that I think is really important, and you know, Amelia and Emily Nagowski's book *Burnout* I think is just a, a, a beautiful book that has inspired me a lot and kind of traverses race, right, in, in in many ways. And one of the things that I think has been really important from that has been meaning. It's a core principle of the the work I do with women of color. But why I say meaning and purpose, right, is that I understand. A lot of people come into companies and come into their work environment and are not, you know, they know what the mission is. They know what the vision is. But a lot of times managers aren't working together to kind of think about how it are their dreams? How are their goals? What is their vision for their life? And I find too often that for many, you know, people of color. Those conversations don't get had. Like I know for others, a lot of times, whether those be in just conversations ad hoc, those kind of things may come up. But making sure there's a formal situation where there is visioning, where there's an opportunity to hear somebody's vision and help them to align that to what actually is the vision or the or their role in the company. And so when there is visioning, they need support around strategy. Okay, so how are we going to make this happen in the next 90 days? And so that really feeds into what you talked about with feedback and the idea of really feeling like somebody's there helping and supporting you throughout, but giving you a strategy to succeed rather than many times people flailing through it and ultimately not having the success, the promotion, and the leadership that we so often see disproportionately outside of people of color. Accountability, I think, is a big piece of this, too, with ensuring that there are specific touch points where people really have the one-to-one time period, of course, with somebody that touches not only on their work, but their their whole personal development vision as well. So how is this working in relation to how you're doing, like in terms of your time and your boundaries and your values and the other pieces that really help people see themselves as whole people at work instead of just like, I'm a cog in a wheel. So. Those kind of things I think are really important and a lot of times aren't as as available to people of color as they are to white employees, to be very frank.
0: I could not agree more with you. And I want to shift just a little bit for a second because we've been talking about white managers leading a team in which there are one, possibly more people of color in their team. What about the opposite? What if you know, What would you say to people who are managers, who are people of color, who are leading a team with white people and, and how they should think about engaging their white team members that they're responsible for in this conversation? Are there, is there anything or any advice that you would give to people of color who are managing white people?
1: Yeah, I think that understanding, I think, one, the learning piece is so important because I will say that inherently as someone who's been a black manager as well, I would say that depending on the person, of course, there have been, you know, certain beliefs or ideas or, or unconscious or implicit biases about my capabilities and my ability to to move forward. And I think that what one of the ways that I've gone around dealing with that is starting to put things on the table around, okay, so how are you feeling about this position? What are the things that you think are going to be difficult? What do you think are the things that are going to be easier for you? What, what can we do to support? So I really think at least the it, while it's a different makeup, but I think transparency is key to allow for people to really share they're not going to like if they're OK, if, if if that white person is, of course, racist, they're not going to share that. or But what I would say is that the sheer majority are not, of course. And I think that the big thing is a lot of times there are certain beliefs and biases that we just hold that we need to address and say and not in the sense of I'm a woman and do you trust me, but more so are there any things that, you know, would be helpful to like help you move through this process or and doing that regularly and periodically, especially at the upfront. So it just allows for a communication because I think most times the the biggest place where a lot of the problems happen is the lack of communication and courageous conversation. And if we're starting afoot, with the idea that there is open space for these kind of um, conversations, then that allows, I think, for a lot of these issues that usually, you know, bubble up to the surface to be avoided.
0: There's so much more we could talk about, but we're <laughs> running out of
1: time.
0: Yes. So can you tell us, Omolara, about a manager that you had that was a true rock star and what made this person so fantastic?
1: Yeah. So as actually a manager who I, I just left, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm now a full time entrepreneur, but she so she was my division director at my um, previous institution and she was extremely, I think, vulnerable about kind of where she was, like as a new person coming into this kind of role, never being a division director and did a lot of listening in the beginning, which I think was really important and allowed for there to be a sharing of ideas before kind of the decision-making, going into her decision-making role. And I think, you know, while there needs to be decisiveness as managers, I think doing that front work, was really powerful in terms of setting the stage for her to be an open ear, for her to be someone who we felt like we can go to and at least feel seen and feel heard, which a lot of times is half of the battle, I think, in in, manage, in, in manager positions. So um, I really loved her for that in particular and, and just continuing to keep like the communication lines open of making sure she was connecting with us periodically.
0: She sounds fantastic. (laughs) And and where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, so Melanin Medicine Motherhood, of course, you you can learn more at www.melaninmedicinemotherhood.com. And while we, of course, provide services. So for managers who are feeling like, there, you know, I think of our work as really supporting retention and satisfaction by providing this space of safety and freedom for Black women in medicine and academia. But I also think that it's really important for to learn, and I do teach this, um, to learn how to create these safe spaces within your own institution. And what are the ways that we have built our space to be that kind of place? What are the things that you can utilize in order to build that I think is really important. So people can also contact me outside of coaching and the community that we serve about kind of building these kind of things or speaking about it or providing some technical assistance.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and your thinking today. This was, I, I definitely learned a ton and I'm super excited by uh, taking this even further.
1: Thank you so much for the
0: opportunity.
1: It was my pleasure.
0: I so appreciated this conversation. As a special guest offer, Omar Lara has provided access to the replay of her masterclass, How to Have Courageous Conversations. In it, you learn to begin building the confidence to communicate with key stakeholders, foster relationships, and get what you need. To access this master course, become a member of the Modern Manager community at themodernmanager.com slash join. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.
1: Meetings are one of the most critical
0: components of healthy collaboration. And teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com.
1: You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team. I can tell.